Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is JJ Anselmi, drummer of sludgy metalcore band Drainage, and most pertinent to this conversation, author of Doom to Fail, the incredibly loud history of doom, sludge, and post-metal. It's a really good book. I've been reading it over the past couple of weeks. JJ writes so evocatively with such passion. This is clearly music that has defined the trajectory of his life. And it's one of those music books that makes you want to check out all the bands that you already love again. So for me, that's like Neurosis, Godflesh, Author and Punisher, Big Brave. But also all the bands that you hadn't heard before or were keen to check out but never got round to. JJ writes with such passion and persuasion about why these bands are great or why they're interesting to listen to. Uh, so the likes of Candlemas, The Obsessed, uh, I've been diving back into Black Sabbath as we discuss in this conversation. It's a really fantastic book and it's definitely reconnected me with the idea of heavy music as a really fundamental thing in my life, but also as a type of music that really illustrates how enjoyment is not the correct word for why this music is so compelling. There's, as JJ says, there's something about authenticity here. It speaks to different aspects of the human experience. And sometimes these aspects of the experience are only really accessible through heavy music. And he captures that so well in this book. It's a really good read. I thoroughly recommend you check it out. Go over to jjanselmi.com uh, where you can find more information on Doom to Fail. And as always, go to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening for more information on JJ's picks and links to his work as well. Cool. So this was a really cool conversation and I hope you enjoy it as well. So without any further delay, JJ Anselmi on Crucial Listening. Hello, JJ. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Hey, Jack. Thanks so much for having me on. So before we start talking about your three important records that you've brought to the table, uh, I want to ask you about your book, uh, Doom to Fail, uh, History of Doom, Sludge and Post Metal, which I devoured in audio form over the past couple of weeks. Um, I mean, the book is, I should say for people who are intrigued, it's split into three sections. So you've got Doom, Sludge and Post Metal. Um, reading through the book, I think you make a really strong case for treating these in their own trajectory but you really get the sense as you're reading it that there's a strong kinship between these styles of music i mean my first question is at yeah. what point did it become clear to you that this was how you wanted to structure this book i think that was actually the toughest question that i a kind of toughest problem that i faced throughout uh, once i realized that i wanted to write a, a book on heavy music and to me, like you said, they're, you know, doom, sludge, and post-metal have always been kind of distinct to me, especially as I got older. But 
I've also always seen them as, you know, like intrinsically connected at the very base. It's very slow, yeah. <laughs> heavy metal, um, I think is kind of like the broadest way you can describe it all. Um, but yeah, trying to uh, lump it all into one book was kind of a big challenge. I was reading um, books like Choosing Death um, by Albert Mudrian, the book on death metal, and then American Hardcore and um, both of those books and a lot of other music books like follow a really kind of linear trajectory. But when I thought of lumping, you know, um, like neurosis into like the same discussions of like I hate God or like going backwards into doom, I, it just didn't quite feel right. So I realized that I once I realized I should separate them into their own kind of classifications and the book should be separated that way. And then each one follows more of a linear trajectory within the subgenre. Um, it, made, it made a lot more sense to me. But then I started facing the question of like, well, is this band really doom or where do they go in this? <laughs> like, do they go in the sludge section? And so sometimes it was pretty straightforward, but then there are a lot of questions like with... Uh, corrupted the Japanese band. I remember it it was a really hard one because I was like, well, is it Doom or is it Sludge? And then part of me was just like, is this like just a bullshit (laughs) stupid question to even think about? Does it even matter? Because there is at some point where it's just like, is the music good or is it, you know, not good in essence? But then it corrupted they've always had like a very kind of specific ideology about you know not really doing interviews and not having people photograph them and so something like that really struck me as coming from more of like a kind of a punk background where a lot of bands have a very defined ideology that they try to stick to in addition to the music so yeah once i figured out the structure there was some tough questions like that but uh (laughs) I mean, one thing that I noticed, which I think maybe, I don't know whether it was deliberately done to make your job easier in that respect, but what I love about the way Mm -hmm. you've written the book is that the music leads first. So you've got chapters on bands. You don't have chapters on a specific stage of the lineage of Doom. So you're not setting out a ideology and then plugging bands kind of into that hole. You're just kind of letting the development of that music be a byproduct of just talking about these bands i mean i love that because it just means that you end up talking so much about the music and those bands specifically rather than a sort of peripheral theorizing around those bands um was that an intentional move yeah definitely i really tried to look as closely as possible about where the bands were coming from and the more i thought about it that kind of made sense of the uh need for the classifications of doom sludge and post metal because when i started kind of looking at the earliest practitioners of of doom like black sabbath and coven and then kind of onward if i felt like i kind of realized there was always like a like a reaching toward some kind of like larger spiritual understanding or truth um but then when it came to like when Melvin's and I Hate God came into the mix, it was very much more grounded in just like daily life. Um, a lot of kind of like concrete neg- negativity, which there's, you know, all kinds of that stuff in 
and Doom as well, but I feel like a lot of those bands, um, you know, like modern day versions being like Yob and Bell Witch who close out the Doom chapter, um, I still feel like there's some kind of reaching toward, you know, whatever you want to call it, spiritual understanding or just maybe totally. some kind of, you know, connection with the spiritual self. So, yeah, I feel like those kind of classifications were really a way to honor where the musicians were coming from. And like you said, kind of put the music first, because as much as it can kind of sound silly of like um, distinguishing between doom and sludge when like Melvin's came along, it it was a lot different. The, you know, where they were coming from, Mm -hmm. the music, they were coming from a hardcore background and had gotten sick of that. So yeah it's just all kind of a way of trying to honor where the people were actually coming from when they created the music that they did and when you're talking about this music i mean your writing style is so evocative i think that's why i've gone to listen to so many of these bands after reading about them because the enthusiasm that you imbue into talking about this music is so infectious but Oh, you also write about them in the way which kind of gives the impression that you are already incredibly well-versed in this music. Um, I mean, I know from writing these kind of books that it involves devouring such a huge amount of music. Was there anything that came out of this uh, writing and producing this book for you where, I don't know, certain bands or records that you'd not really considered before suddenly kind of leapt to the forefront and made you think, oh, wow, this is actually really cool? Yeah, the more I, um, well, I should go back and say thank you for the um, really kind comment, or really kind uh, compliment. (laughs) (laughs) That's really awesome. Um, And I should say, too, that's exactly, you know, that's exactly kind of what I was going for is that I've always had this huge, you know, kind of um, this huge enthusiasm for the music. And so really my goal with the book was to just, bring people into that to say like you know here's why it's meant so much to me over the years and if you already know about it then go back and listen to all this stuff that you already love or if you don't know about it like <laughs> come on in it's also for you but um a lot of one of my favorite things about this book has been like really putting all these records in context as much as i possibly could so really trying to go back and and see like what Candle Mass was listening to, for example, when they made you know Epicus, uh, Dumicus Metallicus. I always feel silly saying that record, uh, saying that album name, and really trying to understand like what, trying to as as closely as possible trying to understand what um, those records sounded like when they came out, because I think that's really when a lot of that stuff is really really special when you try to put it alongside other music of the time and then you can start to realize how impactful it really was. And mm. as far as bands that I, I started to appreciate on a new level, Cathedral was a really huge one. Um, when I started to go back and realize how slow they were playing for the time and um, you know using the really gnarly growling vocals and then putting that alongside other heavy music that was coming out, I just realized, I was just like, oh shit, this was fucking insane for the time this was really really gnarly um there was some other like some of the other death doom stuff i had similar reactions the band um winter was one Mm. of the big was one of the big ones and i just when you kind of think about it in the context of the 
really early 90s of these bands playing so slow and so just torturously um it's 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 pretty mind-blowing you know Mm. considering that like it really took you know almost like 20 30 years for other people to start to catch up and make music that's that heavy like in uh you know bell witch and stuff like that yeah it makes total sense that someone like southern lord would reissue that winter record right to kind of put it in the current context yeah for sure and and it is kind of there's always you know some difficulty because you know as far as like that's a good example of a band that i was just you know i was like five or six years old when winter was <laughs> making the <laughs> records um and so i really wasn't old enough for a long time to understand what was happening and so i'm really looking at all of it in in retrospect and trying to piece it together which is i don't know maybe one of the benefits of the book or kind of i don't know it i guess it definitely would have been wouldn't have been possible without the internet to write this yeah. book the way it came out one other question I wanted to ask was about your band Drainage. So you're a drummer. I should also say that that comes through in the book in the best way. Like uh, as soon as you start talking about drummers, I, I feel all of that life of drumming coming forward in the prose, which is absolutely lovely. But I've been listening to Drainage's latest EP that you released last year, The Younger, Older You, um, and it's really good. Been having oh, thanks, the best man. time. I, I think what I love is music that is played very slow and with such weight and yet it's so concise it's fabulous sound is unbelievable i wanted to ask what what are your memories of recording that one because the sound like the the quality of the production is immense yeah the the production is um all in thanks to our friend um roly who's just this amazing uh producer and he also plays in this um just phenomenal death death metal band called teeth it's like this uh, dis- dissonant death metal, and they just create these layers that, um, to me, it, it reminds me. It reminds me of seeing like Neurosis or something like that, where just the music completely surrounds you, which is, mm. um, you know, to kind of like, to me that that type of layering to hear it in death metal is just you know kind of something else. It's pretty rare, um, and so yeah. Roly. I mean, the production is just because Roly is such a good producer. We did it in one day, and, um, you know, in addition to being a phenomenal guitarist, he's also, um, he can play drums and just knows how to get everything to sound very, very good. Um, So we recorded that. um, They actually, before I had joined the band, had those songs written, um, and I've only been in the band for about, a year and a half and drainage really started as um the guitarist ricky is kind of his his like solo project and he's doing this really gnarly industrial um and then um he formed a full band with um d and the original drummer shane um and they made the first record and then when i moved out here to long beach i was playing with a different band for a little while once i discovered drainage I, I could just feel i was like i should be in that band i, I knew that we had like a, a similar affinity for all of the uh hydrahead you know kind of like sludge um metalcore stuff it really came yeah. across very clearly in the sound because in addition to like you know heavy stuff like floor we all really love mm-hmm. um 
coalesce and you know kind of that early like mid 90s metalcore the actual recording of the album was just a very like kind of loose fun day it really creates a very like welcoming atmosphere and drainage one of the things that i really love about the band is that we're just really great friends and love hanging out with each other as kind of cheesy as that sounds and so when we get together and and play it's usually you know it's like music is obviously a huge part of it but we're also just hanging out and kind of shooting the shit and joking around and just enjoying being around each other so it's kind of you know like anxiety inducing as the music is supposed to be the actual creating of it is (laughs) very positive and (laughs) warm and friendly yeah yeah often the way i think yeah Um, so let's talk about your three important records jj I wanted to ask how you thought about the term important uh, when picking your list of records. I mean, there's so many different ways to slice that term. So how did you think about the term important when picking your list of three albums? Yeah, that's that's one thing that I really... I, I was tempted to ask you, like, what you mean by important, but then I realized I was like, oh, that's part of the... Like, that's part of the fun of it, is I'm kind <laughs> of supposed to decide in the way... I, I decided it was very similar to kind of my um, decision-making process for which albums and bands to focus on in the book was just really trying to look at impact and and it was really hard to limit it to three but I tried to focus on three records that you know if you took them away there would just be this huge wave of bands and sounds that wouldn't really exist in the same way the most obvious one was Black Sabbath, you know, self-titled record. Um, and I've always, one of the things that, you know, really made me a huge Black Sabbath fan in high school was that I realized um, just how intense it was for the context when you kind of go back and listen, into, listen to other stuff that came out in 1970. It's just in completely its own world and it still kind of blows my mind um i i do wish you know if i could ever time travel to just go back in time and really get a feel for how that record sounded to people when it Mm. came out because it just it's still so heavy today and i can't really imagine what what it sounded like back then and so the first choice was pretty easy and then the next two are a little bit more difficult um I chose Melvin's Gluey Porch Treatments because to me it really was like the kind of first push of of like actual sludge metal and channeling a punk, like an impish punk and hardcore spirit um, into music. It's very grounded in reality. It's also like super dirty and sounds almost kind of nonsensical at times. <laughs> um, and yeah, you know, that was like the record that pushed I Hate God and essentially like all these sludge bands to exist in the first place. And so that was another one that was huge with the impact. And then the Neurosis record through Silver and Blood, I, I thought hard if I should include it was between that record or a Godflesh self-titled album. Oh, wow. Yeah, because it, it was a really hard decision because... I don't think that Neurosis record would sound like it does without the Godflesh record, which is kind of a, you know... So maybe mm. I should have picked... No, I don't know. I, I could say... <laughs> I, I, I stand behind the Neurosis because 
I think they still took a lot of that stuff, like what Justin Broderick had been doing in Godflesh and the idea behind it of like exploring heavy metal, but, you know, kind of deconstructing it in a lot of ways and just trying to reimagine it into something else. I feel like Through Silver and Blood really took that to this logical conclusion that to this day is just very um, gnarly and intense and it's it's one of the few like few records in my life that have genuinely like scared me the first time I listened to them and (laughs) the other two were um, I Hate God Take Is Needed for Pain like the first times I I really started getting into it there was just this very real menace there that scared me but also like drew me in and then Sun um, Black one scared the mm. shit out of me the first time I listened oh to it oh my god yeah, yeah. same <laughs> and I think the Neurosis record Through Silver and Blood it just it recreates its members like subconscious weird darkness so well and it draws you into it that it's just something that you know it's incredibly captivating and it's a masterpiece on so many levels and that really spawned you know what we the kind of popular um conception of post metal with like isis and then moving on from there of uh like rosetta and the ocean and um cult of luna and all those bands so which one of these records do you want to dive into first um we could just go in order if you want to sure thing so sabbath to begin with sure wicked so you talk about this in the book i think discovering sabbath and the impact they had on you at quite a young age i think in the book you talk about playing sabbath covers at the age of 12 but can you remember hearing this album for the first time yeah so when when me and my friends were just kids we kind of knew just iron man and paranoid and i knew like i thought of it as kind of just like cool i don't know like um i don't know exciting heavy metal but it 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 really wasn't until later a couple years later when i was like 14 or 15 or maybe even 16 when i listened to the self-titled record and really started to understand how heavy sabbath truly is and especially going back to that that time frame thing when you put it next to other records like um you know the first led zeppelin record or any of the stuff that was like dark and scary back in 1970 and the sound is just so much more immense it it, it really mm-hmm. is kind of mind-blowing and you used to play sabbath covers i mean was there any songs off this record that you used to cover when you were a teenager um no i i wish i would have when <laughs> my friends and i were like 12 the uh, iron man and paranoid was a lot of it was just because the guitarist's older brother was really into Black Sabbath and we thought he was really cool. But then after that kind of period, we all discovered Korn and that was, you know, really where I focused a lot of my energy for a long time. Sure. But then once I started getting into Sabbath and and Doom in general, um, I'm, I'm from a small town in Wyoming and so I really would have wanted to play stuff like that. Um, but by the time I was like 15, 16, I didn't really know anybody else in my hometown who liked doom metal. Um, and then kind of later when I got to know 
some of the older metalheads who I didn't go to school with, they still liked a lot of, um, mostly like, you know, a lot of fast stuff and death metal and grindcore, which is awesome too. And they exposed me to a lot of that, but I was kind of on my own as far as like delving fully into, uh, the doom and sludge thing. Although the people did show me crowbar back in the day. And so that was pretty life changing as well. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, so so with this sabbath record i mean if you think back to memories listening to this album what does that look like is there a particular place that you go back to or a particular situation yeah for sure it i mean what i'll always think about with this album is being 16 years old with my first car um it was kind of a a, a junker i guess um <laughs> it was my grandma's old car and it had um been in a wreck um which is kind of a funny story in itself my friend at the time was driving um a rental car behind my mom in salt lake city utah and ended up running into the back of my grandma's car and so, <sighs> and so that was the, that was my first car when i was 16 and it was this new yorker with this huge you know huge dent in the back of it that had been hit (laughs) and bastion bumper and it and it was one of those uh it had like a automated voice when you know that was like kind of a high-tech thing for a 1986 (laughs) new yorker to have and so it's constantly saying that your washer fluid is low and (laughs) shit like that it was just like this walking hessian mobile basically and so when I got it, uh, my friends and I, uh, we were BMX kids, and so we had been watching these, um, there was this clothing brand called Little Devil, and we all, you know, it was like a, a very gnarly, like, progressive BMX uh, brand as far as, like, the way those guys rode and stuff like that, and so there's also a lot of destruction attached to that culture, and, you know, we definitely thought it was all kind of cool and emulated those people by uh like spray painting these weird like hypnotism spirals on the car's wheels and just like (laughs) whatever random shit on top of it and then covering it in stickers so it just looked like this kind of abomination as i was driving through my hometown (laughs) in wyoming and so of course it had a um a tape player that didn't work and no CD player. And so I ended up just setting up a, a boom box in the back seat with a tape player because the tapes wouldn't skip. And so my wow. memories of really listening to that first Sabbath record are of driving around in that car and playing, um, playing, you know, especially like the first track and really just understanding kind of the worldview that's behind it, um, you know, with Black Sabbath coming from an industrial town, Birmingham, that to them really seemed like a dead end when they were younger. And that really resonated with me because the small town where I'm from is a, a coal mining boom town. And it just goes through like, there'll be these intense energy booms where everybody's making money and people from all over the country will move there to like get jobs and move away. And um, there ends up being housing shortages. But when I was growing up, it was during a bus phase when the work is a lot more sparse and people are kind of constantly worried about money. And just from a very early age, it didn't seem like there was much hope in that place for me. And so listening to that Sabbath record really felt like the kind of, you know, a friend patting me on the shoulder that it was just like this recognition 
of growing up somewhere like that that you mm. know I'll, I'll never really forget it and it's hard to think of a, a an album you know not only like as impactful on the culture of heavy metal but as personally impactful as well because yeah i i think you can really judge the albums that have a huge impact on you when you when you can remember the first time you listen to them and you can remember where you were and that's you know definitely one of them and is it a record that still comes out now yeah for sure <laughs> yeah definitely I'll, <laughs> I'll i might put it away for a little while but yeah it, it's it'll always be something i listen to especially um what i really go back to now is bill ward's drumming on that album was just really oh, really mind-blowing and i think kind of underappreciated as far as like what he's actually doing it's super energetic and there's all kinds of like very high energy fills you can really tell on that record that he came from a jazz background it's almost yeah. like like buddy rich you know kind of playing really heavy music um there's a lot of like real deafness there that when i hear when i've heard anybody try to cover those songs nobody plays them like bill ward did back in the day <laughs> and not even bill ward like when you know when i ended up seeing black sabbath later on um you know, he didn't really have those <laughs> the same chops anymore either. <laughs> uh, so there's so many, it sounds like anyway, from reading the book as well, there's a, a number of Sabbath records that have clearly resonate with you in yeah. quite an intense way. This one coming out being the first, I'm sure that grants it a certain amount of impact, like to come out with this and to this be your like opening statement proper is quite strong but is there a particular reason why you went for this album over others is there any particular qualities of this record musically which meant that you wanted to bring this one to the table yeah i think a lot of it is the um the cultural context thing you know mm -hmm. that it was the the first one and it was there was just no real framework for music that's that heavy and so slow really that's what i end up going back to is just from the very first song on, it's very clear that it's something that was very different for the times. And I think still, when you put that record next to all the other Sabbath records, I, I could probably make an argument that the self-titled song is probably the heaviest song they ever wrote. I don't know. Maybe not. No, <laughs> I, I, think I, I think I would make that argument. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, because uh, so uh, I'll, I'll be honest. So Sabbath has been a really interesting one in my life. Like I, I have friends who are absolutely obsessed with Sabbath. Yeah. And, you know, at least once a year, I, I have someone preaching their love of Sabbath to me and saying, you know, this band completely changed my life. I've never been able to establish that same connection with Sabbath myself. It was so fascinating to go in and listen to this record. Like I've not listened to the self-titled record all the way through. Yeah. Um, so the first track I was kind of, I was expecting, I, mean, I, I know the first track. The rest of it is, I mean, there's a real buoyancy to a lot of it, which I yeah. really wasn't expecting and I don't really associate with Sabbath. I mean, is the stuff that, I, I mean, as you say, Bill Ward's a, like a busy drummer. He's incredibly like, yeah. just technically wicked. Um, but the, the, the music as well has a real energy to it. I mean, does the stuff that's not so slow also speak to you in the same way as like the first track? Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> and I've, yeah, there's that kind of, maybe it's like a contradiction of playing music that comes from an angry and depressive place, but then there's also celebration in there. Or maybe that's just the fact mm. of 
making music as as humans and we're kind of filled with all these weird contradictory emotions but yeah i think you're you're fully right that record is the the most clear that you can you can hear sabbath in in their early days of like when they're working as like a bar band that would get hired for <laughs> i'm trying to remember it's like three or four sets a night i think what would be a standard for like a lot of like blues bands and stuff like that back in the day and it was instead of like how we have like you know like four or five bands at a show now they would just hire one band that would play multiple sets and um so yeah i think on that record you can really hear that background for sabbath and really hear them kind of like jamming around and entertaining themselves to a certain extent and it's probably in the days when they weren't fully sick of each other yet and so you know yeah i think there's a lot of celebration there and that comes a lot across a lot in uh i think master of reality in volume four Mm. that came back a lot especially in like you know sweet leaf is a very celebratory song or yeah um lord of this world all those riffs sound there's like this element of fun to it which is kind of yeah it's like i said it seems kind of contradictory given like the idea that doom is supposed to be just very slow and depressive but maybe it's just the human element of you know there's there's always joy even when you're depressed it's not just well i I shouldn't say that for me when when i'm when i have been depressed there's always like um you know there's always kind of like rays of sunshine in there and stuff it's it's not just straight sadness right and so yeah just that human quality yeah i think we do especially nowadays have an association with bands that are incredibly severe that they have to be locked into that end of the palette like there's no way that they can bring a bit of radiance to what they're doing because it would almost feel to undermine it but clearly it's something that you know can be done and can cohere perfectly well yeah and that's i should say that's one reason i love uh like the band torch comes to mind as a band who does that so well right now and it's just it's just very very fun and positive (laughs) and yeah Yeah. i I think it's um you know very refreshing when a lot of some you know there's that kind of sense that like you said metal has to be like dead serious and completely dark all the time and i think it, it definitely can be but it can also embrace you know every other aspect of being human Let's go to your second record now, JJ. If you give me the the name of it again, and then a, a, a little bit about how you first heard it. Let's go with that. Yeah, Melvin's Glue Porch Treatments. So that was kind of one of the bands that I remember my friend when I was um, like eighteen or nineteen showed um, showed me Melvin's, and he had found out about him because he's a huge uh, Nirvana fan, and then kind of took a step back and discovered Melvin's and so I I had heard it for a long time but it it was one of those bands that it took kind of quite a while for me to like fully understand exactly what it was Mm. and Gluey Porch Treatments actually wasn't the record 
that did that it was uh stunner which really like brought me into the melvin's world and helped me kind of understand at least like that record or understand the sound a little bit more but then when i started going backwards and again kind of i i'm always uh trying to put music in context and imagine what it sounds like at the time it came out um glue porch treatments really just started to seem more and more mind-blowing to me and it's another one of those albums that i think if you if you try to take it away the the amount of stuff that it influences you know like is staggering and so i always try to imagine like when i'm trying to judge impact like if you took this album and it never had existed like what else wouldn't exist and i think there's so much that wouldn't really exist in the same way and then for that one uh doing an interview with uh, buzz osborne really made it made me appreciate it on an entirely different level and that, that was kind of one that i came away from the book just being even more appreciative of and when i interviewed um buzz osborne a lot of I asked him a lot about just growing up in a small town and kind of what that was like. And it sounded like we had kind of a similar experience in that, you know, he he knew from, it sounded like from a pretty early age that that's not what he wanted his life to be. And that kind of, you know, rural lifestyle of, um, you know, like working very intense jobs and living in a place where everybody knows everybody and, the kind of cultural elements not being as pronounced just wasn't going to uh, wasn't going to work for him. Mm. And so when I started to hear more and yeah. more about his background and kind of, I could feel a lot of that stuff come up in in glue porch treatments for sure. But yeah, it's kind of going back. It's definitely a record that um, took me a little bit longer to like truly understand and appreciate. When you say you could hear a lot of that stuff coming into gluey porch treatments, tell me a bit more about that. Where where are you hearing that in gluey porch treatments? I think part of it is just in its antagonistic spirit. You know, he kind of <laughs> it, it sounded like I don't want to you know put words in his mouth necessarily, but it sounded like you know he he had a pretty big chip on his shoulder um, growing up. He didn't like a lot of the people that he grew up with, and so. If he was going to make music, it was going to, you know, kind of like press people's buttons. That seemed to be his response to that environment mm. is to, you know, maybe fuck with people a little bit. And so that album is like, when you think about it, is coming from kids who had grown up on hardcore and then became burnt out on that stuff. And so to kind of antagonize hardcore kids, they said like, what would be the most annoying thing we could possibly do? And it would be, you know, to play as slow as possible when everybody is trying to play faster and faster. <laughs> they just jammed a kind of, you know, a stick in the spokes and said, fuck you, we're actually going to do it way slower. And if you, you know, it seems like the attitude was, if people hated it, all the better. Um, although that said, you know, he, he did talk about kind of going on the first tour for that album and um being very discouraged because i think there was like they had made this very antagonistic record but then seeing people actually react to it with you know volatility and just straight up hating them what seemed a little bit different and pretty discouraging for them yeah i i think you make a really good point in the book where you say that it's so easy to romanticize that kind of anti antagonistic energy but if you are facing that reaction and it's genuine vitriol for the thing that you've created then actually that's quite intense for someone playing music 
Yeah, and it is. I think it's easy to have a sense of humor, but um, yeah, I've been in bands where we thought it was you know like funny to clear the room, but then after a while of just clearing the room, it's like oh fuck, <laughs> it's not a great feeling. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, one thing you talk about with this record a lot is Del Crover's drumming. Uh, and again, yeah. this is what I really enjoy about the book is that I'm never listening to music as default from the perspective of being a drummer because I'm not. So when mm -hmm. you get someone who's able to bring that perspective, I mean, it draws out a completely different appreciation of that music and listening yeah. to this record from the perspective of kind of just listening to what Dale's doing is such a treat because he's going all over the shop. Um, yeah. Can you tell me, I mean, you, you, you talk about it so well in the book. Can you, can you tell me a bit about what it is about Dale's drumming, particularly on this record, that you really enjoy? Sure, yeah. He's um, a classic example of what I call a behind-the-beat player. And it doesn't mean, like, playing offbeat necessarily, but it's, like, it's such a small fraction amount of time where it's just a tiny bit. It's still on beat, but it's like the smallest bit kind of behind the guitar and bass. And so it really feels like it's like this huge foundation. It ends up creating this much bigger sound. Yeah. And um, yeah, he, he's, he, I think he's one of the best people to ever kind of play in that style. And it just really creates this pedestal for everything to sound so much heavier and bigger. It creates this sense of space in an entirely different way. Mm. And looking back, uh, I think one of the things that maybe took me longer to understand about that record is a lot of the drumming especially sounds kind of like nonsensical and pretty wacky. But then once I had the realization that everything is there's intent behind everything I, I was just like oh shit like he, he thought about all this this is how he wanted to sound and then i started thinking like how hard it would be to create sounds you know create drumming that is that off kilter on purpose um it, it's just kind of mind-blowing and i think he he's very well appreciated in the world of heavy music but i mentioned in there he's not necessarily like you know, you're not going to see him on the cover of Drummer's World, although I, I think you should because he's, you know, he's not like traditional in a lot of ways. And I guess one of the things I was, I heard a, a really good funk jazz bass player told me, um, like a band is only as good as its drummer. And, or, and, and then he also said behind every great band is a great drummer. Mm. And so I think if you think of, you know, Melvin's as being this tremendously impactful band, a lot of it does rest on dale crover for sure yeah and uh, i again this is a record that really it's only in doing this podcast with you jj that i probably listen to it i've been listening to melvin's for a while but never this album and yeah it was amazing i think what i picked up on in these early stages of being acquainted to it and i'm definitely going to listen to it more is that kind of frenetic energy that you hear within dale also radiates yeah. within so much of the record as well in terms of like this structure of the songs and the way in which you get, I mean, you talk about these disruptive kind of minute long yeah. tracks and stuff like that. It feels like a record that kind of has this sort of frenetic stop startness all over the place, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it really was, you know, you know I think at its base, it's it's metal deconstructed in a lot of ways. And it's also like, hardcore deconstructed in some ways it just kind of 
takes all the traditional understandings of what those things are supposed to sound like and reimagines it into something totally different while still kind of keeping the original spirit there of, you know, antagonism and kind of um, trying to confront people. And it just approaches that in an entirely different way. Do you have a favorite track? Um, yeah, I always go back to uh, As It Was, mm. for sure. Um, there's this really awesome Melvin's compilation record that came out um, some years ago, and I Hate God does a cover of that song. And then I like, you know, um, retroactively went back and listened to that Melvin's track. And it's just this, it's just one of those riffs that you can't help but get stuck in your head. But then it also includes all those other things you're talking about, the kind of off kilter weird changes and just overall disorienting nature and then suddenly in the midst of it is this like maybe even kind of celebratory riff that's very very catchy and Mm. um yeah fun in a lot of ways and so that song has always been the one i go back to and have you seen melvin's live yeah yeah i have seen him a couple times um i was lucky enough to see him with when they were doing the um two drummer Ah, nice. um, thing when they were joined with big business and you know again being a drummer and um cody willis just being this phenomenal drummer in big business so seeing him and dale crover um just the way they approached having two drummers in a band and the way they would write compositions and just essentially use two drummers to make it all feel even that much more woozy and kind of disorienting was was just mind-blowing to watch live and so that's probably always going to be one of the favorite shows that i've seen and then i've seen them you know numerous times since then just as a three-piece and it's it's just as awesome i think one highlight was uh they were touring with napalm death and melt banana and i thought that was such a great yeah such a great um just mix of bands that also like weirdly kind of makes sense as far as them just being kind of like off the wall and on a different plane in each of their respective worlds. Yeah. So yeah, that was a really good one. Wow. And weird. and it, Melvin's, it, 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 they're much like Neurosis in that uh, they're just as tight as they ever were, if not that much more tighter. And so I think to me, it's really inspiring as a musician to just see people who, you know, like won't compromise their musicianship in old age and also like they did party very hard, but I don't know, somehow made it through in a way that they seem relatively healthy now. And so, yeah, it kind of blows my mind that they're as old as they are and that they've been doing it for as long as they do. And they still sound so good and so tight. Whereas you have, you know, um, kind of some of the older like 70s bands and stuff like that. When they reunite, it's <laughs> it's not so successful. Or, yeah. yeah, when they when they keep going at that same age or after so long it doesn't uh (laughs) it doesn't sound that good anymore On that, let's go to your final record, JJ. If you uh, tell me the name of it and then uh, again, where, where you first heard it, how you first heard this one. Sure. So through Silver and Blood and 
it I had been into um, Through Silver and Blood by Neurosis, I should say. And before that, I, I had gotten really into ISIS. Mm. Kind of when I had graduated from high school, I, I knew about a lot of like Sludge and Doom. And then when Macedon's um, Leviathan came out and I started to discover that band, it really pushed me into just kind of this new understanding of what heavy music could do that it could also be like very subtle and very layered and it was also kind of around that time frame that um, I was like first getting high for the first times and first tried LSD and so started to hear music in this kind of like different psychedelic way and really starting to appreciate layering and what, what that can do in music and so after Macedon I discovered isis and got really into it and i knew that um neurosis was always like a huge influence for isis and i would kind of go back and listen to it and it it just didn't stick for like a couple years for some reason and then weirdly enough when i stopped getting high and stopped doing drugs and became sober um that's when through silver and blood really really hit me and i remember um i was living in Denver, Colorado, which is like six hours from my hometown in Wyoming, and I was driving back home in, in the middle of the night, and I was listening to Three Silver and Blood, and Wyoming is is just this very massive, you know, landscape. There's a lot of times, kind of the way they laid it out was like a hundred miles between each small town because that's just how they laid out the railroad tracks. Wow, and so. It's just this place where I think it's very easy to feel your smallness as a human and really understand how massive nature is and just understand that, you know, the world is always going to keep going with or without humans and kind of getting a sense of, yeah, yeah, like I said, just the true power of nature. And so driving through Wyoming at night, it's, it's easy to just feel like the darkness is kind of just closing in on you and... Um, just feel like very alone you'll see other like cars on the freeway or semis going by but it's definitely a very isolating landscape and so that's kind of you know in in that environment and then playing through silver and blood for the first time it just I remember feeling like something had reached into me and just like grabbed grabbed hold and it was this very very intense experience and this kind of like delving into this weird subconscious space of both myself and the members and it's just this kind of like very um perception altering experience and again like i said this was completely without any drugs or you know outside influence like that and so thinking about how impactful that was without you know any kind of um inhibiting substance is, is still pretty mind-blowing yeah i mean are there any particular tracks from that Again, this is going back a few years, but any particular tracks from that first listen that protrude in memory as being like ones that really connected during that first listen? Yeah, I think um, the first first song again mm. with the um, the um, use of like tribal drumming from multiple members. You have the actual drummer Jason Rutter, who's one of my favorite drummers of all time. He's a great example of that kind of behind the beat yeah. and you know in the pocket it's just it's just very very massive and it and it's a type of drumming that i think at first glance 
especially to somebody who's like very technically schooled and like deft with you know different kind of like um fills and flashiness or whatever it might seem like kind of even dumb in a certain way but when you realize like how unique that feel actually is it's it's pretty mind-blowing and then he's also um he's just phenomenal at kind of creating this sense of hypnotism through rhythm and so when you have the other members pounding on toms along with him it just is this very primal experience and so i think it just again it's that that process of drawing you inside yourself and also you know it draws you into the members subconscious murk that they were dwelling in at the time and it's just this very surreal intense experience and then amidst that kind of repetitive like hypnotism and you know very deliberate drumming neurosis has always been good about like throwing in a couple weird changes and mixing up the timings and stuff like that to where it just kind of it jolts you out of that daze a little bit just long enough to kind of like bring you back in and um yeah that's a very impactful experience and from the first time i actually got it kind of during that drive it's it's probably something i'll never forget yeah, you talk about those changes in the book and it really made me appreciate them in a new light. Uh, yeah. I, it just seems, some of them, in fact, when I really contemplated them, just seem bizarre and fantastic for that reason. Like in the first track, as you say, when it's got that just circling dirge for four minutes at the end of the track. Yeah. And then somehow they decide to just throw in something that suddenly accelerates at the end. Like uh, yeah. it, it, it defies sense you know it feels like it's draining itself of all energy and then suddenly it's just got a little booster in the tank to do that final little ritual it's really weird yeah Yeah, and i think part of that comes from if you like read neurosis interviews and hear a lot of their influences they all they came from a like crust punk background but they also all loved like king crimson and stuff like that that would utilize just odd timings and stuff to kind of create this sense of unease and so i think neurosis has always been very smart about understanding how you can shift the feel and it's like you said it is jolting but it's also not um it's all it's not like completely out of left field it always feels like it definitely belongs in the song one thing you mentioned i think is this one produced by billy anderson is that right um yeah it was produced by uh billy anderson so that his name comes up in the book quite frequently. I mean, was that something that you were aware of prior to writing the book that there was, you know, Billy's role within forming this music was so prominent? Um, I think uh, I always, I kind of knew of him as you know this pretty like a uh, very well respected figure in heavy music, and I knew that he had um, produced a lot of like very impactful albums. But then yeah, when I started to like really line them up as far as like all these records that ended up having this tremendous impact it became pretty mind-blowing and still to this day the production on that album and then um the weed eater album 16 tons always stands out to me as it's being completely massive and of Mm. course sleep um dope smoker as well yeah and just this massiveness of of sound that i still feel like people are kind of catching up to and i have no idea I'm not an audio engineer for like how he did that, but I think part of it is just that he 
it, it really shows you the power of trying to work with or what happens when you work with a producer or a band works with a producer that really understands where you're coming from and understand what you're going for and what the sound is supposed to be and i think that's part of why he was you know he's such a special audio engineer is that when neurosis kind of came in with that record i'm sure it was mind-blowing for him but he also knew kind of how it should sound yeah which is amazing because it's a busy record as well like there's so many elements to put in their place i mean another thing you forefront in the book and i'm glad you did because I think it's a very important part of the neurosis sound, but is the sampling uh, yeah. within the music. I mean, you mentioned it's a kind of like a perception altering experience listening to this album. Yeah. To what extent do you think the sampling plays into that aspect of it? I think, you know, very extensively when you hear um, kind of like going back and reading about the process of recording that record, there's there's like all the samples and layers of sound that you hear but then there's also from what i understand um like multiple layers of sound that are what the members of neurosis call more like something that you feel yeah and so they describe it as something that like is supposed to like your brain might recognize it on a subconscious level but it's not something that you really consciously think about and so i think yeah the sample sampling does a lot of that work to just create this weird pull somewhere deep in your brain that I think a lot of art tries to access, but like very, you know, it's, it's very rare that something actually does access that. I, I think of um, the way I feel listening to Neurosis Records is similar to the way I feel watching like a David Lynch, um, <laughs> David Lynch film of just, it seems very strange and you're very captivated. And then, at some point it just reaches inside and pinches this kind of like ancient fear and just something very very old in your brain and it yeah it's it's kind of funny that samples would be a way to do that since it's you know a form of technology it's that weird kind of postmodern thing of like um trying to access primitive parts of the self you know with with technology essentially and you've alluded to this there, I think. But I, I mean, when neurosis appear in interviews, it's clear that enjoyment is too reduced a term to really describe how they're feeling about this music and doesn't hit the nail yeah. on the head at all. Like I, I did an interview with Scott about, I don't know, four, six years ago, where he talked about playing a neurosis song solo and said, I'd never do that again. Like it was too much. And you talk about in the book them... Uh, you know, playing those through Silver and Blood shows and it being like an incredible, like an incredibly intense experience and like a bloodletting. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think that's reflected in the listening as well. I mean, it's it's not enjoyment per se. It's so much more complicated than that. What yeah. What is, <laughs> this is maybe a nebulous question, but what is it for you that compels you into this music? And I think probably this has um pertinence for most other music you talk about in the book but what is it that draws you into neurosis if it's not enjoying it specifically where is the compulsion to listen to neurosis for you i think it's something about it feeling very very truthful Mm. um it just seems like this very very pure and accurate you know capturing of of what it's like to be human and have a have a human mind and i know especially for them 
at the time they were recording that record, they were kind of dealing, there was a lot of addiction and stuff happening with the band. And is also, they're from Oakland, California, which is, it's kind of a gnarly city that when I've gone to Oakland, I've always been kind of, and, and I guess it's the same with Los Angeles. I feel like the, the divide between, um, the rich and the poor is, is just so stark and mm. you'll kind of like, you'll go from an impoverished neighborhood to suddenly a couple blocks later, you're seeing mansions and it's just this very weird, surreal experience. And so, yeah, I think it's just something about that, that recognition and that honesty that just feels very real as like what the world is like and what it's like to exist in the world. And yeah, I think that's something that I always look for in art is just a accurate depiction of what it's like to, you know, exist in the society and um, in in your own mind. And I think that album recreates that so well. And like I said, it, there's that kind of that element of fear that that album creates comes across from that because I, I think there's definitely parts of our of our minds that are not, you know, like the to me. I think maybe the purest like exploration of the subconscious was probably on LSD and it, it's just not a, um, I mean, there, again, maybe there's some humor and stuff in there, but it's also just like, there's, to me, there's these terrifying elements of, of the human spirit, um, that you can't really deny. And I think, you know, a lot of this music is just this very honest capturing of that. JJ, that sounds like a wonderful place to wrap things up. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about your book and uh, your three important records and all else besides. This has been great. Yeah, thanks so much, Jack. I really, yeah, enjoyed it. And um, yeah, it, it, it's it's great to uh, connect with somebody who, you know, engages with heavy music on, on kind of an intellectual level and really strives to understand it. And so I really appreciate what you're... Uh, what you're doing with your podcast thank you um if people want to check out your book which they definitely should where's the best place for them to go to do it um in the u.s uh bookshop.org is a great place to uh pick it up because um the proceeds end up the from what i understand the organization is like um you know donating certain portions of proceeds back to indie bookstores which is obviously very important right now so bookshop.org is good but I, I would also say just however you know however you can get a hold of it is fine i'm not exactly sure what the availability is um internationally nice well thank you again jj and to everyone listening i'll see you next time goodbye thanks so much jack <laughs> <laughs>